four weeks from now, uh, Gary Lundberg and Jake Stokite and I will spend a weekend in jail ministering to those, uh, the Spiritual Impact Weekend. And uh, one of the ways that we have to make an impact uh, upon those in the jail is to write letters to the inmates there who are, who are in jail. These are, are personal but anonymous handwritten letters that are, are given to the inmates at, at one point in the weekend. And though I've never been involved in one of these weekends, I know that uh, the, the testimony I've heard is that the impact of these letters are actually quite large. Uh, because for the most part, these inmates have been long forgotten. They uh, um, have little family on the outside world, and, and the family they have it hasn't visited them or hasn't written letters for them, and sometimes it's been months or years even that these inmates um, have received a letter from anybody. And so they, when they receive a bag of letters from us, like Gary, Jake, you guys have been there? Well, just give me a testimony. Like, what did they say? They cry. They cry them start beating and to see their, themselves kind of melt and to be encouraged, they just cry. And they're <laughs> Gary, you want to add anything about the letters? Go ahead. They, they told me, Jake heard too, that not just that moment, but it's one of their prized possessions, which I have never experienced because I get cards out of away after a couple of years. But they take them with them to state prison and read them again and again and again. Uh, it just to encourage them because they feel so alone. Yeah. Well, there'll be 34 residents because I think there's 17 rooms in the cell. Is that right? I haven't even talked to you about that. Whatever. 34 cells. Okay. Okay, single occupancy, 34, 34 letters. So I have to write 34 letters, and so does Jake, and so does Gary. And I want to invite you on joining us in the letter writing campaign. Um, if you want a heart for the jail ministry, you want a heart for people who are in prison, as Jesus said, right, um, whatever, Hebrews 13 says, remember those who are in prison. If you want to remember those who are in prison, just I would purge, encourage you to put some skin in the game um, and uh, just write some of these letters for us. It's really easy for you. It's just if, if every one of us would take just 15 minutes, we'd have... A ton, enough to write to everybody. Um, I put the instructions of the weekly word. If you're looking for those again, I can send them to you. You simply write to my brother in Christ. You write some encouraging words, maybe what you read in the Bible that day, or maybe something else. And then you just write from your brother in Christ or from your sister in Christ. Children can do this too. Families, you want to do this around the table. And I guarantee two things. If you write some letters, you will make an impact in someone's life. You will put tears on someone's eyes if you write a letter. And you'll develop a heart for the jail ministry. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And if you take some time to write a letter and send some of your treasure time into the jail, you will have a heart for the jail ministry. And so one of the things to make things easy, you can write them on a computer paper, on lined paper. I had Yvonne print out just some cards of some calligraphy that she did. If you want to, in the card, just to make it smaller, but these will be treasured. Gary, you saw these or heard about these. You said they'll really treasure these, right? Not only for the verses on the front. So if you're interested in doing that, just come talk to me. I'll give you some, but I need these back. Like if you take one, I need it back, okay? I need it written out and need it back actually by in two weeks for sure. So not this Sunday, but next Sunday, um, bring it back. And so I got a, a box of them. 
And uh, so you can use those, and Lant, or Gary and uh, um, Jake, we'll just, we'll just make up whatever we have to do uh, beyond that. So you just write that short and small, get them back involved in the jail ministries just in a, a small little way. Well, talking about letters. This morning, we will be looking at a letter that Jesus himself wrote. Not one of us to a prisoner, but a letter that Jesus wrote to churches. And the letter we look at today is found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. This is a letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Pergamum. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open in your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2. And as you're turning there, let me tell you about one of the most important events in ancient Greek mythology. It is the legendary story of the Trojan War. The Trojan War was fought between the, the Greeks and the city of Troy. And this war began when a man from Troy named Paris took a woman from Sparta whose name was Helen. Now, Helen happened to be the wife of the king of Sparta whose name was Menelaus, and the war was fought to rescue Helen from the Trojans and avenge the honor of the city of Sparta. You can't just come into our city and take women. Well, the war was fought for 10 years, and despite all of their efforts, the, the Greeks couldn't breach the walls of Troy. The, the Trojans were simply too strong in defending the city. And then there was that Odysseus, who was known for his shrewd intelligence, he devised a plan. You guys know what plan he devised? Right? He's going to build a big wooden horse. And the master carpenter, Epius, built it. And, and then one day, the, the Greeks brought the horse to the gates of the city of Troy. And then they left. And they got in their boats. And they sailed away. And, and the Trojan took this as a, a, gradulato- a congratulatory concession. And they believed that they had emerged victorious in, in this war, this long war against the Greeks. And so in celebration... They brought the gift horse into their city and began to celebrate. The, the, the war was over. They, they, they had triumphed. They saw the Greeks leave. This was, kind of a congratu- this was a congratulations trophy, right? Well, a decade of war was over, so they thought, because when the night came that the Trojans were celebrating their presumed victory, the Greek warriors hidden inside the horse. Can you see that okay? You can. Wonderful. Hidden inside the t- horse, emerged, opened the gates of the city of Troy, allowed the rest of the Greek army, which had secretly returned, to come and enter the city. And the, and, the, and the Greeks unleashed a devastating attack, catching the Trojans off guard, overwhelming them. And Troy was, was unable to defend against this surprise assault. They fell to the Greeks. The city was sacked. The treasures plundered. Its citizens killed or enslaved. And the Trojan War came to an end. And the Greeks emerged as victors. Troy was reduced to ruins. Now, this story of the Trojan horse has been told for centuries. There's debate about whether it's true or not. Certainly, there was a war against Troy. Whether this horse was there or not, we don't know. But the moral of the story remains true, whether this is fictitious or real. When the enemy is clear, one can stand firm. But when the enemy is cunning, one can lose the war. And that's a, a bit of what we're going to see this morning in our, our text. Because those in Pergamum right, were capable of defending against the outright attacks but yet fell to the subtle ways of false teaching. This church in Pergamum was strong when facing the onslaught of the enemy, only to be seduced by the deceitful lies of false teachers. So I want to read for us this morning from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. 
the church in Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone, which no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, for the past few weeks, right, we've been looking at the churches of Revelation. And here's a, here's a map of where things were. This is modern-day Turkey. Um, John was writing this from the island of Patmos, which is basically a, a prison island, a um, little bit like Alcatraz. He was there, received this vision from Jesus, who told him to write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Help me, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. So eventually, if we sing that song enough times, you'll be able to say it faster. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Two weeks ago, we looked at the church in Ephesus. They, and we discovered that they'd lost their first love, and Jesus was calling them back to do what they did at first. Whether it's love for God or love for others or love for those outside the church, whatever, just whatever you lost, come back. And then last week, we looked at the church at Smyrna, the persecuted church, and we discovered there that that Jesus called them to endure the tribulations they were facing and to be faithful unto death. And this morning, as we just continue on the, the postal route right, around, right, right along the way, we're going to be looking at Pergamum. This is a, a wayward church, a hurt church that held the name of Jesus, but we're following after the false teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. That's my title of my message this morning is Forsake False Teaching. I could have put forsake Balaam and the Nicolaitans, but I felt like just forsake false teaching was good enough for us this morning. And this letter, like, like all the seven letters, begins in the same way by addressing the angel of the church. Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write. And again, we, just, we don't know who this angel is, whether it's an actual angel, that it was like a, an overseeing guardian angel, could be, or whether it's a, it's a message to the, the leader of the church who would be giving messages to the church. We don't know, but the, the point is clear. Jesus is writing to Pergamum. And with every letter, he begins with a description of himself. We see that right there in verse 12. Quote, this is Jesus, right? The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. If you look back in, in chapter 1, you can see this apocalyptic description of Jesus. The, the ancient of days who is coming. Revelation 1.13, I just want to read some of it so you get a sense of it, so you can see the context which the sword comes. Verse 13, amidst the lampstand, I saw one like a, a son of man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. 
In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth, here it is, came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And here is the the bright appearance of Jesus, right? Brighter than the sun. We have the, the loud appearance of Jesus, his voice like the roar of many waters. And out of his mouth, verse 16, comes this sharp two-edged sword. The same description is here in, in verse 12. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And this is my first point this morning. It's a sharp sword. We see it clearly, but what does it mean? Right? This is apocalyptic literature, like political cartoons. Right? We've got this sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. What does it, what does it mean? Well, from Hebrews, we know the word of God is sharp, that which is spoken. Hebrews 4.12, the word of the God, word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, God's word comes out, it's living, it's active, it pierces our hearts and our souls. Anyway, the next verse in Hebrews 4, verse 13, tells us how deeply this word penetrates. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all things, all of us, are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. And in some regards, right, this imagery, (coughs) excuse me, of the sword in Revelation chapter 1 is this, the words of Jesus are sharp and penetrating. They can pierce us and pierce us deep within. Maybe you've had that experience before where you're reading a part of God's word and it's just like that convicts you to the heart. That's the power of God's word. And, and maybe that's the strong word that comes out of his mouth, the, the convicting word that, that pierces us deep within and it shows us our sin. It's the judging word also that, that we'll all face in the judgment day. Right? But beyond that, Jesus tells us the sharp, le- the sharp sword that comes out of his mouth. He, he tells us a little bit more about it later in the, the letter to Pergamon. Look at verse 16. Therefore repent, if not... I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And again, this is the mysteries of apocalyptic literature. What what does it mean that he's going to wield war, wage war with the sword of his mouth? Is it a physical sword? Maybe. Is is it the word of confrontation that will come upon those who refuse to repent? Or is it a, a sword of judgment that's coming will ultimately bring those false teachers into condemnation? We don't know. But we know it's bad, right? You don't want Jesus to come at you with a sword, right? You can take out the shield of faith, but I think Jesus' sword is sharper than your shield of faith. And um, such a strong word comes to those who fail to repent. It comes out of the mouth of Jesus, and Jesus is going to right the wrong of the church in Pergamum. This, by the way, is the message of the book of Revelation, that Jesus is coming to right the wrongs. He's coming to establish his kingdom in righteousness. And we who have repented of our sin, experienced forgiveness of Christ, have hope at the coming of Christ, will join in his kingdom with him. But for those who have failed to repent, even in the church, like those here in Pergamum, they will fail to join in that kingdom, and they will face the wrath of the Lamb. That's Revelation in a nutshell. Jesus coming back. He's going to gather his believers to himself. And you're going to punish those who have refused to repent and believe. And that's the sword that comes out of the mouth of Jesus, I think. Well, let's move on to verse 13. It says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. 
I'm calling this verse a strong stand. Because that's what those in Pergamum have taken. They've, they've taken a strong stand against Satan in this city. In fact, look at how Jesus describes the city in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Satan's throne is right there in Pergamum. And Jesus describes the city this way twice. Look at the end of verse 13. He says this. He says, who was killed among you, right where Satan dwells. Satan's throne is there. Satan dwells there. Because Pergamum was a very religious city. One commentator said that Pergamum regarded itself as the custodian of the Greek way of life and of the Greek worship. And if you know anything about Greek worship, you know it's filled with idols and gods and, and immorality. It's the gods fight against one another, so also people fight against one another. It's the, the gods are immoral, so also the people are, are immoral as well. And particularly here in Pergamum, they worshipped Asclepius, known as the Pergamene god. They like had their own god. The emblem of Asclepius was the serpent. Coins in Pergamum, right? We might have our presents. Um, Lincoln and Eisenhower, right? Whoever's on JFK is, is on our quarter. Many of the coins in Pergamum have Asclepius' serpent as a part of their design. So right on the coin itself was a serpent, clear symbol of Satan going back to the Garden of Eden. But, but beyond just even the, the gods and the worship of that, Pergamum also was the administrative center of the entire region of all these churches that we've seen in Asia Minor. All of them, right, Pergamum is, is the place where the center of Caesar worship was. It was, it was the, the, the main hub of uh, political activity, which was the practice of acknowledging Caesar as Lord. And this is where early Christians really struggled, got in trouble, if you will. And, and we saw last week, right, we saw this man, Polycarp, a church leader in Smyrna, the letter last week, who was burned at the stake for not bowing down to Caesar, why the Romans killed him. He refused to bow to him and, and pledge allegiance to him, and as a result, it really cost him his life. And we see another martyr here in Pergamum. His name is Antipas. This is a, a relief drawing of Antipas. I don't think either of these guys really looked like that. These are sort of maybe icons that are worshipped in the Eastern Orthodox Church with halos behind them, but it just gives you something there. And he is spoken about here in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet, here's the good thing. Here's where they're standing fast. You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, we don't know when Antipas died. We don't know when he was killed. Those in Pergamum knew. We don't know. In fact, that's the dynamic oftentimes of this letter is that, that the original recipients of this letter knew far more about what was going on politically and, and recent history-wise than we do. We, we don't know anything about Antipas where he died other than this verse right here, verse 13. But in Pergamum they knew. It may have been during the reign of Nero. Um, maybe it was during the reign of Domitian. But it was sometime before John wrote Revelation. If we understand John right, he probably wrote Revelation around 95 A.D., so I just put a date there. I just guessed. I said maybe 80 A.D., right? Maybe it was 60 A.D., maybe it was 70, like maybe it was 90. We, we don't know, but we knew about there. And we don't know the exact circumstances behind the death of Antipas either, but tradition has it that Antipas was burned 
in a brazen bull-shaped altar for casting out demons worshipped by the local population. That's why this picture of him in this, in this bowl right there is a common torture and execution device used in ancient Greece. So further, that's where the tradition holds as well. But that's tradition in the manner of death. We don't know if that was the case or not. But we can assume why he was put to death. It was because of his refusal to acknowledge Caesar as Lord and his profession of following Jesus Christ as the Lord of Lords. In fact, that's the one fact that Jesus mentioned about Antipas there. He calls him my faithful witness. Wouldn't you love to have that name? When you stand before Christ someday, he says, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been a faithful witness of me. For those of you with us through the book of Acts, right, that's the call of Acts, is that we would be faithful witnesses to Jesus. But here's Antipas. He, he stood strong in testifying to the lordship of Jesus and re, refusing to acknowledge the lordship of Caesar. And it cost him his life. And he was one of those who followed in the ways of, of those who conquered Satan. As, as mentioned, we'll get to Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. And Antipas loved not his life even unto death. He's a little bit like those at Smyrna were called to be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. He made a strong stand. And again, right, I just need to remind you, this is the culture to which John was writing. John wrote his revelation to a persecuted church. To those who are facing hardship because of their faith in Jesus. And you, you need to understand it was not written to a church at ease, like a church in America. We struggle with a message of joy at the coming judgment. But not those who are being beaten and being falsely accused and had their property being plundered and their reputation being slandered and being killed for their faith. For them, the message of Christ coming back, inflicting vengeance upon others, that's great joy. And if you don't have that joy about Christ coming back and destroying the enemies of Christ, probably because you're not persecuted. Probably because you're at ease, at peace in this church in America. You've got to keep that in mind. Because that, that's who is writing. That, these are the people to whom he was writing. And isn't it interesting here that Jesus simply says, those in Pergamum, right, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And it isn't interesting that Jesus never says, move away. They're they're sitting right in the heart of where Satan is, and and Jesus says, I know, I know. He doesn't say, get out of there. He just says, I know. Well, as most of you know, my wife's in California, and we often visit her folks the cheapest vacation we can have. We drive out to California and we stay at their house and we take side trips. It's been a wonderful life together, Avon. You guys love California? It's very fun, right? But not everyone in California loves California. Uh, A few years ago, we were driving along a highway, um, happened to see a U-Haul trailer, and so I took a picture of this trailer. And um, what was interesting about this U-Haul truck and trailer was that sign, and you can't read that sign, so I I made a little close-up of that sign. I just want to read it for you now. Bright neon green sign that says, Goodbye, CA, California. 
Goodbye, Newsom. Goodbye, left-wing Dems. Eat my dust. You have ruined my state. Good luck, MAGA. Not everyone in California loves California. And I know what these people are talking about. California is the most liberal states. Taxes are high. They tolerate many evil things, certainly. But as evil as California is, it wasn't as bad as Pergamum. Satan's throne was there, and people were killed for their faith in Jesus. And some may argue Satan's throne's in Sacramento, but people aren't being killed for their faith in Sacramento. And Jesus nowhere tells those in Pergamum to move out of this city and say, eat my dust, Nero. He didn't say that. He didn't say move to Ephesus. He didn't say move to Smyrna. It could be worse in Smyrna than it is in Pergamum. He simply says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. It just means that Jesus is sympathetic to where we live and the pressures that we face in our society. And I don't think the call on our lives is to move to a place that more aligns with our, our vision and our values as believers. Now, I don't think it's wrong to do so. I'm not, I'm not judging these people who are, who are doing that. But we are not commanded to leave where we are to seek something better. It might encourage us who live in Illinois, which may not be quite so off of where California is. But instead, we're called to stand strong where we are, like those in, in Pergamum. And can you imagine the stir that would have caused those in the church in Pergamum when, when, when Antipas was killed? I mean, just imagine, right? Think about one of us at Rock Valley Bible Church who refused to bow the knee and worship the government, put to death for the rebellion against the government, put to death by lethal injection precisely because they didn't worship the government. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about being killed for refusing to pay taxes, which is illegal, right? Put you in, in jail. Right? I'm not talking about being killed for brandishing weapons in the Capitol building, which is unlawful, or for threatening government officials or any other crime of the state. I'm not, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about an upright citizen, pays taxes, honors police, honors authorities, but put to death because they were forced to bow the knee to Caesar. It's hard to see that happening today among us. In fact, I, I don't know in the history of our country whether anyone has been put to death for this reason. Maybe, maybe there have been some. Okay, Maybe that, certainly, in 250 years, there's got to be some. But like, imagine if one person in one city in America truly being a faithful witness to Jesus was put to death, our country would be in an uproar. But that's what happened in Pergamum. And those in the church, they refused to compromise. They, they, they stood strong. And again, look at verse 13. You hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. They didn't deny Jesus. What a, what a good thing to be said about this church. But not all was well. The church at Pergamum. Though they stood well for Jesus, all was not well with them. Look at verse 14. We see, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. We're calling this a soft stand. Though they took a strong stand, 
when the enemy was right there and they, they stood as Antipas did, there's also a soft stance that the, the church took. And this soft stance was a soft stance on sin. False teaching had come into their fold and they tolerated it. In, in verse 14, this teaching is identified simply as the teaching of Balaam. Now, obviously, it wasn't Balaam himself, but it was a, a follower of Balaam. Someone, because Balaam lived in the times of, of Moses when they were wandering in the wilderness. But this is someone who was teaching just the same things that Balaam taught. And if you know your Old Testament, Balaam's an interesting character. He was a prophet of God who spoke the truth of God, but was wicked in his heart, leading Israel into sin. The heart of the story is in Numbers 22 through 24. You can read it and takes maybe about 15 minutes to read the whole story about, about Balaam. And in these chapters, Israel's wandering in the wilderness and the other nations around are, are aware of God's power in, in Israel and what was taking place there. And they were in, in danger to their own nation, they were. And so one king in particular, Balak, the king of Moab, was fearful of Israel. And, and so he summoned Balaam to come and pronounce a curse upon Israel. And, and Balak knew the the power of the words of Balaam saying this, Numbers 22, verse 6, I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. And, and so he said, Balaam, why don't you come? Why don't you come? If you bless and if you curse, why don't you come and you curse Israel? Can you do that? So Balaam went back and forth what he should do, and, and he asked God once, and God said, don't go. And he asked God again, and God says, don't go. And he asked God again, and God said, okay, just Go. Is what God said. And along the way, right, you remember the, the donkey spoke to him and, and rebuked him. Finally, he arrived to speak with Balak, the king of Moab. And Balak asked Balaam to, to curse Israel. And Balaam sought the Lord. And he came back and he blessed Israel. And Balak was mad. He's like, I called you to curse. He said, I can only say what God says. Here's Balaam, right, a prophet of God who speaks the truth of God. And that happened again. Okay, Balaam, you go and you come back and then you, you curse Israel. And he went, heard from the Lord, and the Lord said, bless Israel. So he blessed Israel. And Balak's like, no, no, that's not what I said. That happened three times. Balak is super frustrated. He said, what have you done to me? You took, I, I, I took you to curse my enemies. And bold, you've done nothing but bless them. And Balaam responded in the right way. Must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? On the one hand, Balaam looked pretty good. He was a prophet speaking the words of the Lord. But Balaam was a little bit like this Trojan horse, and the public all looked good. Right? He, he, was, he was strong and right, right, right put forth there. He looked like a gift, said the right things, but there was deception in Balaam. It was Balaam then who, who got the people of Israel. He, he counseled Balak to defeat Israel in another way, advising the Moabites, well, Secretly, right? Entice the people of Israel with prostitutes and idolatry. So though he would only speak the word of the Lord, on the backside there was deceit there in his mouth. We read of the sad situation in Numbers 25, 1 through 3. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And, and these invited the people to sacrifice to their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked itself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that 24,000 Israelites died. There was the deceitful practices of Balaam, professing the Lord in public, never going against the Lord, but on the backside, right? 
bringing immorality and idolatry into the camp of Israel. And that's why, why Jesus rebuked those in Pergamum, because there are teachers there who did the same thing. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, verse 14, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. It's Balaam being underhanded. Right? I can't speak publicly against that, but hear what you might do. You might just infiltrate the people with your women. And then they'll persuade people to pursue idolatry, and then God will be mad at them, and God will destroy them for you. That was all orchestrated by Balaam. And this is my third point, is that those in Pergamum were taking a, a soft stance on sin. Oh, they didn't deny the name of Jesus. In fact, even look at verse 13. He says, you hold fast my name. But at the very time that they held fast the name of Jesus, there were teachers in Pergamum who tolerated idolatry and immorality. And I say this, today in America, there are many who don't, don't deny the name of Jesus, but they tolerate sin. That's exactly what's happening here. It might go like this. A church gathers, sings songs to Jesus, claps, lifts ways, right, really into it. The public word is proclaimed. The, the Bible is lifted. The Bible is preached. And sin is tolerated. It's not so much what's said in church. It's what's not said in church. There are many churches like this in America. Preach Jesus. Preach faith in Jesus. Preach hope in Jesus. Preach the gospel. People are told, right, if you believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross for your sins, you'll, you'll be forgiven. And, and you'll be holy before the Lord and you'll enjoy, enjoy everlasting life. And, and you'll be saved by his grace. And, and it's by faith alone in Christ alone. And you'll come into his kingdom. And many churches in America, what I've said is exactly right. And churches say that, but they fail then to speak against sin, which is what was happening here. In other words, right, they take a soft stance against sin. And nowhere is the implication of the gospel proclaimed. That when we believe in God, God will change us. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus described it as a new birth, right? Something totally different. Our desires are going to be different. We will want to shed our sin. We, we, we will shed our sin. Yes, it is. Ephesians 2, 8, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, the gift of God, not as a result of the works that no one should boast. Yes, the gospel comes by grace. It comes by faith alone. But the gospel doesn't end there. When God's grace comes upon our life, not only does God just forgive us, he changes us. And he makes us workmen to work for him. Ephesians 2, 10, right after, saved by grace. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We aren't saved by our works, but we're saved unto works. It's the implication of the gospel. And it's, it's important always to understand the, the value and, and the work and the place of works. They don't save us, but they show that God has worked in us, and they give glory to God. Jesus said, Matthew five sixteen, Let your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds, the works you do, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's the place of works. But there are churches in America who don't talk about the implications of the gospel. It's faith apart from works, full stop. And the assumption comes, though never stated publicly, that really as long as you believe in Jesus, your behavior doesn't much matter. Your idolatry and sexual immorality is really, it's okay because, see, they believe in Jesus. 
It's the teaching of Balaam that he had against Pergamum. And he's like this Trojan horse that Satan used to infiltrate the church with sin. Because once the, once the gospel of faith comes into a city, right, the, the, the people come out of the horse and they bring sin into the horse because, hey, we've got, we got a horse into our heart. The horse has come in. We're okay. And I think the Nicolaitans are much the same if you look at verse 15. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we know nothing about the Nicolaitans, except that Jesus mentioned them earlier when he wrote to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 6. Commending them, he says, This you have, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Notice Jesus emphasizing there upon their works. He says he hates their works. Nothing about their teaching, nothing about the gospel. He says he hates their works. And I believe it could be the, the same as Balaam. Believe and trust in Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. And we say to that, yes, 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 amen, yes. But God doesn't save us to wallow in our sin. And that's, that's good news, right? That God saves us and he changes us. If anyone is a Christ, he's a new creation. The oldest passed away. Behold, the new have comes. But the Nicolaitans apparently weren't walking in this new way. They're indulging the flesh just like Balaam had taught. And Jesus said to the church in Pergamum, you're taking a soft stance on sin. And therefore, you're teaching falsely. Let's preach the whole gospel. God saves us by his grace through faith and trust in him. And he transforms us to be conformed into the image of his son. I mean, that's the aim and the goal for us that we'll know in eternity sometime. Romans 8, 28, 29. Let's move on to my fourth point. We've seen a soft stance. Now we see a, a strong sword. In verse 16, we read this. He says, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. This is a threat. Okay? When, when Jesus says a war, the, the sword of my mouth is coming out, it's going to come and make war. That's, that's a threat there to those who think they can profess Christ with their lips and live lives of wickedness. Jesus will come and judge you. He will find you out. He calls us to repent, repent of our immorality and repent of our idolatry. We'll see that next week, especially in terms of the immorality and the idolatry. If you look at Jezebel, verse 20, I have this against you, O church in Thyatira, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, eat food, sacrifice to idols. Same message to both these church, Pergamum and Thyatira, almost the same thing. But Jesus is calling us, calling us all to repent. And notice who's being called to repent. It's people in the church. This isn't evangelistic in the sense that <clears throat> this is outside the church. This is where I've heard it said before, the greatest evangelistic field is within the church of Jesus Christ. Not the true church, but the professing church. In other words, right there, there are many people in church who don't know Christ. Many. Lip service won't suffice. <clears throat> Matthew 7. <clears throat> Excuse me. Not everyone who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
Here are professors of Jesus coming to Christ and saying, look at all the good things I've done. I've cast out demons. I've worked miracles. I've done all this stuff. Excuse me. And Jesus says, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. We can't be practicing lawlessness and professing faith in Christ. When Jesus came, the scene in Galilee, his first words were this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When Jesus came, he said, turn from your sin. Forsake your old ways. Believe and trust in the gospel. And these in Pergamum were called to turn from their idolatry and from their immorality. So you say, what is idolatry? I've been pushing in the weekly word with you all the the New City Catechism, the answer for idolatry. It's question 17. What is idolatry? Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for hope and happiness, significance, and security. Hoping in created things rather than the creator. We need to turn from that. We need to hope in the creator. Give ourselves to him. What about sexual immorality? Was God required in the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery? The answer to that is that God commands us to abstain from sexual immorality and live purely and faithfully, whether in marriage or in single life, avoiding all impure actions, looks, words, thoughts, and desires. That's what idolatry is talking about. That's what Christ calls us to turn from. That's what Christ is calling those in Pergamum. And so in Pergamum, it's interesting. Here you have some right, who could stand strong against, against the Greeks who are coming. Right? They're in Troy. They stand strong against this attack. And yet others have brought this horse in and the insidious way of sin as God in their midst. And, and Jesus hates it. He does not tolerate immorality and idolatry in his church. He's going to come and make war against him. And sadly, that could include some of you involved in idolatry or sexual immorality. We'll talk more about that next week. I just say, may God grant us repentance so we might repent of these things. And I think in many ways, right, may the glory of the grace of God so stir us that it causes us to walk in those ways. Titus 2, verse 13 says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men and teaching us to deny ungodliness, right, to walk righteously in the world. God's grace coming upon us changes us and transforms us to walk in God's way. Well, finally, we come to my last point, and um, I have two words for my last point. What do you think they start with? I think they start with the letter S. All right, here we go. Signed stone, verse 17. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I've said before, right, these letters that Jesus wrote are open letters. If you have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And, and all these churches were hearing what Jesus was saying to the other churches. So they're all on the same page. They could be encouraged by the church at Smyrna. Pray for the church at Smyrna is going through tribulation. Praying for the church in Philadelphia that's small but difficult as well. Praying for the dead church, Sardis. Just praying that they would, would have life. And praying for the church at Ephesus that they would... Come back to their first love. And we as well, like not only them in the first century, but us as well. We are called to listen to what God is saying to these churches and just seeing if it's true in us. 
but to the one who conquers, that is in this case, right, the one who holds fast the name of Christ, right, has a genuine repentance of sin, to, to that one, that's the one that conquers, Jesus says, I will give some of the hidden manna. So you're trying to think, what's, what's the hidden manna? Well, we'll talk about that as we transition to the Lord's Supper right after my message. So I want to jump down to the next one. So I'll give some of this hidden manna. So there's this manna that's sort of hidden. It says, I will give him a white stone. Okay. Well, you know what? I got a white stone. This is what we get for conquering. She says, here, I'll give you a stone. <laughs> like, I'd, I'd like rather have a dollar bill. <laughs> this is pretty cheap. You see, what does this mean? I have no idea what this means, right? There are some that talk about voting, and they voted with stones, and a white stone was like, yeah, we're good. <clears throat> a little like, like <clears throat> Treasure Island, and if you get the, the black dot, that's bad. The paper, that's bad. Oh, I'm going to uh, better look out. Here's a white stone. No, that's good. Like Some have thought, like, uh, we have no idea. There was maybe some cultural practices back in that day where the, the white stone they received, but, but then it says, have a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What does that mean? Do you know what the name is? None of us know, right? The idea is that nobody knows except the one who receives it. Like maybe Jesus gives me this personalized stone. And maybe it's got some special name on there just for me. And those letters I was talking about, writing to those in prison, that you get to read and the prisoners like have and they love and they cherish and they read them over and over. Those are anonymous letters to my brother in Christ, from my brother or sister in Christ. Da, 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 just like We don't know them. They don't know us. It's like listen, it was just handwritten as a deal. This would be handwritten by Jesus himself, especially for every single one who conquers. Like I get this special name. I won't know what it is until then. But if we think the prisoners treasure their letters, how much are you going to treasure this stone of yours, this own personalized name from Jesus to you? That, that, that's what it's saying, right? I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone, which no one knows except the one who receives it. I'm not going to know what's on your stone. You're not going to go what's my stone. Maybe in heaven we'll share our stones. Hey, look at what my stone says. I have no idea. But it's a sign of just abundant blessing for sure, Right? And now we come to this hidden manna a little bit, right? The fact that it's hidden, like this, this parallel, like this stone which no one knows except me and this hidden manna. So what is that? Well, manna, of course, goes back to Exodus chapter 16. Right? When, when God was feeding the people of Israel with this flake-like substance that came down from heaven, that wasn't hidden. So what's the hidden manna? Well, it could be John 6 where Jesus says, right, you look to... So your fathers, you look to God who gave you manna in the wilderness, but I will give you the true manna. I will give you the true food. And Jesus says what? I'm the bread of life. Whoever eats of me right, will never die. He'll never hunger. He'll never thirst any longer. And I think that's a, a subtle reference perhaps to just eating Christ, which we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. And we do this for you from visiting from Morningstar. Um, we don't do this every week. We do it every four to six weeks when it's appropriate. And here it is. I thought it was appropriate just with the, the hidden manna as we think and reflect upon Christ. And it's open to all who believe and trust in Jesus. You're more than welcome to take it. And so I'm going to invite the men even to go back now. We'll pass out the bread. You can hold it there and we'll gather. We'll sing a song. We'll gather back and we'll 
eat it together, and we'll do the same with the cup as we think and reflect and remember the death of Christ. It's a time when we need to really think and evaluate, examine our own lives that Paul exhorted his people in Corinth to do as well, to examine themselves that they eat or drink the body in a worthy manner. And of course, right, the, the bread and the cup, it's just bread and cup. It's not changed in any way. It's a remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let, let's, let's bow our heads and just even think about your life and think about particularly here the, the call to repent from idolatry and immorality. Things are wrong, things which God hates. Maybe there are idols in your heart. He doesn't require perfection from us, but he requires us to agree with him that he hates idolatry and he hates immorality as much as we do and we're ready and willing to cut off our hand or our eyes because we hate it so much. That God has put this desire for righteousness and following him in our hearts. And so I just encourage you to confess any sin you have. As you eat the bread and drink the cup, you do so as, a, as, a, as an act of true worship to the Lord. It's an act that just says, Christ, I'm yours. I, I want this hidden, hidden manna. So we taste of the bread and we taste of the, the cup as well. Saying, God, I want this hidden manna. I want this. I want you. And so, Father, I do pray as we hear we'll, we'll eat and drink reflecting upon you and the the cross of Christ and what you said that very night before you were betrayed. This is my body broken for you, and this cup is a new covenant to my blood. Drink this as often as you do in remembrance of me. May me remember you. May we proclaim your name until you come. May we not be those who will face the, the sharp sword out of your mouth. But by grace, may we escape that punishment, that judgment. Oh, God, we need your grace. In Jesus' name we pray.